Hey, Good Life listeners, it's Cousin Andy, Andrew Levy, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in to this cross-posted episode of the new podcast I'm co-hosting with Joel, Six Feet of Separation. During the COVID-19 lockdown, we'll be sharing perspectives from New Orleans and around the world about how people are adjusting and coping with this new reality, from artists, musicians, and chefs to frontline healthcare workers and social service advocates. Joel and I would love it if you would check out our website at six, that's S-I-X, feetofseparation.show. And if you like us, consider subscribing to our podcast, available wherever finer podcasts are sold. Stay safe, y'all. Keep your distance. And now, on to the show. Separation. I'm Joel Jackson in Southworth, New Orleans, and on the other line, as always, Uptown on Easter. Andrew Levy, what's up, dude? What's going on, Joel? You know, I think it's incumbent on me to figure out what word I live in so that I can just answer you back. Third or fourth, one of our guests upcoming that will tease uh, might have an idea. I don't know. We'll figure it out. I'm going to try and beat him to the punch. Okay. I like your you- I like your Puma T-shirt, dude. Oh, thank you, as always. This podcast is sponsored by Puma, supplier of fine athletic pl- products. I as, well actually, as, as well as as well as Takate, as well as Takate, Corona, right? Yeah, fuck Corona, indeed. Yeah, no, I have a little bit of a Puma fetish. I have, I think, eight pairs of Puma Liga suede sneakers. Wow. Yeah, that's a brand. Um, I love is, that. It is. Uh, I just started collecting them not all that long ago, and I stuck with it. Unfortunately, not, I don't really get much of an opportunity to wear them at the moment. Well, are they like, why is that? Because you need like, it needs to be cool. Is that the deal? Uh, like, they're, they're more, I don't know. They're more casual going out attire and I'm just not going out that much. Oh, that's right. We're just staying at home. That's right. We're staying at home, Joel. You, um, you may have heard about, so just to, to catch you up. There's yeah. been this crisis. It's a global crisis. There's Dude. a disease that's spreading. At a, it's a pandemic. And Dude. it's coming to your town and preventing you from going outside. I'm glad awesome. I could educate you there, buddy. I still wore my Adidas tracksuit like two nights ago, by the way. So just so you know, the COVID-19 is not a great excuse for not busting out your dopest attire is all I'm saying. Hey, man, you do you. I'll do me. <laughs> The question on everybody's lips that everybody's asking is, are you wearing pants? I'm not going to answer that question. I don't think anybody on this call should. But if we're going to borrow from the culture for a moment, that Word. is the question on everybody's mind. And we have a little bit of a it's, it's funny because obviously, you know, we're, we're, we, we're contextualized by coronavirus as always. But we have a storm approaching New Orleans right now. That's right. It's one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in New Orleans. And we were advised yesterday that there was going to be a tornado watch. So the winds are slowly mounting outside. It keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But it looks like around. No, why do they keep doing that, man? They keep pushing us back. I'm like, can you just start on time? Seriously, why can't we control the weather? Right. Is that so much to ask? Um, I took a walk to get the, the Paps Blue Ribbon that I'm because of America and it's Easter, 
um, that I'm drinking right now. And I took a walk and it was the calm before the storm thing. And I, and I may have shared this video with you of the plastic bag doing like the windy thing that it does. Then the plastic bag was like fall, like stalking. Like, I not saw just one me. of those the other day too, man. I know what you're talking about. And so it made me think of like, how the fuck did American Beauty ever win an Oscar? Like, I understand that it was riveting at the time, Andrew. I thought it was riveting at the time, but it might be the most least rewatchable movie that's ever been Academy nominated or with a win. What, what are your takes? What's, what's well, your it, it won Best Picture, Joel. And regardless of I what know you think did. about it, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly betray the fact that I, I've seen that movie a lot of times. Oh, and nice. I would agree with you that it probably doesn't hold up. But there are some classic moments from that film. I think of sure. lines like, fuck me, your majesty. Or I, really, mm -hmm. Annette Benning got a lot of the best lines. Driving around oh. in the car singing, uh, don't let the cloud, cloud rain on your parade. And then she pulls into the drive-in and then her husband. Yes. Man, like There are some moments in that film. And that's Annette Benning's rage in that film. Yep, delights me to write to this moment. So I just retract everything I just said. Great movie. I don't think See, he should have won the Oscar though. I think the Oscar might have been a bit of an over uh, overstep there. I, I and then agree. Kevin Spacey doesn't hold up well for obvious reasons, you know. You know, but I, I we were talking about this the other day with Louis C.K. You can't deny right. that their performances were good. You hate that's hate right. hate the player. Don't hate the game. Hey, man, Darren Sharper, Sharper helped us get a Super Bowl for the Saints in 2009. And Bill Cosby was my favorite show growing up. So I hear you. Yep. You can't unlive those memories uh, as, as painful as it is to think about them now and as little as the Cosby show gets reruns nowadays. But one segue I wanted to make um, was that American Beauty was making me think about the movie, about how I hate Americans. And it made me think of our music intro for the podcast that we've never talked about on the show so the 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 clinic i believe is that it, so the 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 opening theme music was bequeathed to us by by griper who so you all Shout know out. he 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 hasn't left us yeah. behind he's just a little bit under the weather got the fever uh, like so many people right now i don't know if he has the fever but he, he has, has a, a fever. fever yep um, but he, he thought, and I kind of agree that the, that opening music should, should, should I spin that up again, Joel? Do it. Just, yeah. Just for a quick second. I'll, you know, just spin these, up that these, opening. These dudes music. are from Liverpool, by the way. Clinic. And they wear mat. They wear surgical masks when they perform. And you can look up David Letterman clinic performance from like from 1996 or something. It's fantastic. Yep, they go back there in English band. Liverpool, obviously, with a great musical heritage. Um, but that song is sort of so creepy and foreboding that we thought it was the right way to start. So, And that also made me think about a guilty pleasure that I'm going to get into later but, during Christ's version. Uh, that's great. But speaking of, of creepy and foreboding, man, so yeah. yesterday I've talked about how I'm, I'm on this walking kick in, inspired uh, oh, by yeah. some friends one of whom is joining us on, on the show later on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've been on this walking kick. I've been trying to do uh, about six miles in, uh, every day or two, um, 10 kilometers. And uh, so yesterday I walked the entire length of the, the St. Charles streetcar. 
from wow. Carrollton Claiborne, which is right near my front door, to yep. to uh, all the way downtown at St. Charles and Canal. And, you know, yeah. it was so interesting to get into parts of the city that I hadn't seen and to feel that transition as you're walking down St. Charles, whereas up here at the Riverbend side, people are walking their dogs, they're kind of out, they're running, they're jogging, they're doing whatever. You got Audubon Park. And then the further downtown you get, there are fewer and fewer and pe- fewer people. And then finally, I hit the CBD. And how many, I, how many zombies did you see? Dude, tell me about it. Once I got the other side of of the highway, um, it was just, there was nobody except for, and I I swear to God, one guy riding around on a bicycle saying, bring out your dead, like like a Monty Python uh, call out. Or that so should have been me, dude. If, if anybody remembers the uh, the ninety four ninety five version of Stephen King's The Stand, I believe it yep. was Kareem Abdul Jabbar shouting that in in New York before uh, before everybody was gone. So I think you're was, right. Yeah, that, I think that, you're right. Also, really quick, dude. I love the fact that Stephen King came out like last week and said, "Hey, I apologize for that book." <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, plenty of creepy going on. But enough of creepy. Let's talk about creepy Easter. How about Jillian's hazmat costume? So we've talked, we've talked before about uh, our friend, my neighbor, and my landlady, Jillian, uh, who came out this morning and texted me. And she's like, I need you to come over and take my picture. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> she walked out in a full-on hazmat suit with flowers painted to, uh, or attached to both the helmet and to the shoes. And uh, it was the absolute perfect, I mean, people in New Orleans love to wear a costume, but damn, did she hit that on point. Well, not only is she uh, professionally a costume designer for films and television, oh, you can hear that wind really coming through now, dude. Um, But, also, people in New Orleans, even if you don't do that as a profession, you have a wig and you have a costume closet. And it just delighted me to no end to see her with the uh, full yellow contagion, uh, Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow. Spoiler alert, she dies right at the beginning. Gwyneth Paltrow in that movie. And, but then to see, to see her friend Jillian um, with the hazmat suit with the flowers was just so awesome. So much Plus, fun. you know, Jillian has a hazmat suit, which... Okay. Who has a hazmat suit, dude? I barely, I just got my first mask yesterday. And we're going to talk to our upcoming guests. I want to touch on like a couple more things, Andrew, but should we tease our guests real quick? I'm sure they're going to come on like in three minutes. Sure, sure. Let's tease them. I'm going to let you take the intro, Joel. Yeah, speaking like masks and hazmats and all the shit, we have two people who are healthcare professionals. And um, that's going to be really intense, I think. Uh, one person lives in New Orleans, uh, Molly McGee. The other person, uh, Anne-Marie Van Dalen, lives in Amsterdam. The latter is uh, a frontline sort of healthcare worker. She'll be able to tell us all about that. And then Anne-Marie is a healthcare administrator. Oh, that's right. Happens. Yeah, you know, it's a bizarre world. It's like Seinfeld, you know, or whatever. Um, 
but I have to have like two shout outs, man. And I know, do you have any more housekeeping? You want to get it? I'm, I'm good. You, you take it away, man. Well, it's Easter Sunday. And that doesn't mean anything to me in terms of religion, but it does like the Pigeon Town Steppers second line is normally on Sunday. And it's way, 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 way uptown by where you live. And they're the only social aid and pleasure club that will get my sorry lazy ass off my couch in my little downtown COVID <laughs> and like, um, and get uptown. And I missed that today. And I, I wish I wish we were all there because everyone's in their Easter like nines. You I know, been right out like, there with you, my friend. I would have been right out there with multi-generationals, you. man. It's like there's like you've got great great grandparents all the way down to the great great grandchildren. Everyone dressed up with the ties and the, the whole nine yards and the shiny shoes. That and then I want to shout out because this has been bringing me endless joy in the last 24 hours. And um I don't ever want to overstate this stuff, but like this thing that we're doing now, Andrew, like this recording this, I think it has value because it, we've talked about this. It, it, it's like talk therapy or whatever, but also will exist beyond certain realms of reality. And um, last night, uh, someone suggested to me to go back and listen to something that I recorded with Jeff DeVille in September of 2016. And it was the first time a fortune griper ever appeared on that podcast. It's a good life, babe. Um, and we, and Jeff came up with this concept of, and this is a great Easter listen, folks. I'm just going to say like, I, look, I'm plugging six feet of separation all day long. And this podcast is dope and I love it. But if you want to go back and get a good Easter listen for like games, like just like diversions and stuff to do, Jeff DeVille had so many brilliant, awesome, and funny takes on how to divert yourself with games. And it was called the DeVille Olympics or the DeVille Olympiad, right? He called it both. So I'm mashing that up or whatever. But it's it's so fun. You can you can check that on Apple, Google Pod, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. It's goodlifebay.com. Such a fun listen. Just cut through to the like. 15 minute mark and it's really good and you get to hear griper as well and uh hopefully griper is uh is feeling healthy and he, he certainly was uh, texting me last night uh cracking up and guffawing at some of jeff deville's best one-liners on that show so that was fun and then the last thing i have for you andrew real quick housekeeping is that uh my mom called me up to, it's easter we have to talk about moms right um, my mom called me to give me a little bit of shit about like my lack of religion, you know, during this, I guess, holy as, as a proud atheist, as a, what? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't wear it on my sleeve, but I just happen to put some things out into the world <laughs> wearing on my sleeve, let's say, <laughs> I leaned into the atheism in this one time and she called me to, you know, to tell me how she was offended by that. But, however, we had a great conversation that started out contentious, but ended up with, with having a bridge together and crossing that bridge together and understanding, loving each other unconditionally. So that's where it ended. But here's the point. I left that conversation, got on my bike to go see you and Wheeler and Tom there on his birthday. 
at City Park um, and ran into Rome Julian, the urban farmer from Lake Tilly Acres in Gentilly. From episode and he two. Said, from episode two and he said yo my mom has never listened to a podcast ever and she listened to the show and she thought it was dope so you know i think it's it's fun that it's it's you know whatever it's good i know the moms, I feel you, Joel. Out to the moms on easter for for me it's passover but it's still easter um Indeed. and and the highlight of my conversations with my mom this week was trying to talk her out of panic buying a 60 dollar N95 maybe mask and let, yeah, uh, look out, man. The, there are going to be more and more scams out there the longer this goes on, but it was a website that was just tailored to getting people to panic buy and overpay for a mask that should be under $5. Um, it's really, really horrible. So please do not do not and encourage your parents and friends and family not to buy those crazy masks. Because even, A, they don't need them. And B, even if they did, there are people out there who will need them more. Which brings me to our guests. Yes. So I, I would like to welcome both of our guests to the show. Uh, we have Molly McGee here in New Orleans. And we have Anne-Marie in Amsterdam. Hi, how are you doing, guys? Hi there. It's great really, to see you guys. It's great to see you too, and it's great to have you on the show. So I'm I'm gonna let you both give a little bit intro. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do, uh, where you work, and what perspective you're you're bringing to to the crisis today. Molly, go ahead. Hey there. Um, I am a nurse here in New Orleans. Um, I'm not an old nurse. I'm only about eight years into it. It's my second career. And um, I'm on the front lines, 100% COVID patients all the time. So, um, what hospital? I work at Turo Infirmary. Mm -hmm. It's on Britannia yep. in New Orleans. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. nope. Great well. hospital. They're doing a super job. Great. And What's the day to day like, Molly? I mean, I, I know, I mean, you can get as intense as much as, or as less as you want to, but I assume it's very intense. Yeah. Well, it, um, it started out super intense. Uh, you know, there were a couple of uh, COVID patients, and then all of a sudden, the entire hospital was uh, COVID. And so uh, the hospital had to adjust really quickly to an influx of patients that they really, um, they knew, how, I, I'm not sure, it was just such a foreign patient population that overwhelmed the system that uh, it, every day I went to work, it was new policies, new, um, this new developments, because the more they found out about this disease and the disease process and how it was presenting and um, the testing has developed rapidly. Um, there's been a lot of change. I guess you could say it started out pretty chaotic. Um, and But I do feel like now it, the chaos is controlled. Um, and they have definitely done a good job, I think, of taking care of uh, their patients and of their employees. It's good to hear. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. Um, and yeah. you, you said you had to move really quickly to to get um, to to reconfigure everything to to sort of give people perspective. As of today, we have um, twenty thousand and change reported COVID cases in Louisiana. I'm assuming there are many more than that that are unreported. Would you say that's correct, Molly? You said that many have been actually diagnosed as positive. The, those those are the reported cases. And and it, one thing okay. that I'd like to ask you about later is maybe if you know what the criteria are. But just to juxtapose that against the total number of hospital beds in the state of Louisiana, which is 22,142. So, you know, any one of our listeners can do the math really quickly and figure out the enormous amount of pressure that this is putting on on our healthcare system in Louisiana. And bear in mind, this you know, people are still getting sick with other things at the regular rate. And people are still having, a, they're probably cutting down significantly on elective surgeries, but uh, there, there are still you know, emergency surgeries happening at the same time. So how is that pressure coming to bear on you personally, Molly? How are, how are you facing it every day and, and dealing with it? Well, a challenge, I think um, that the, well, with talking about your numbers, I'm, the 20,000 plus that you're talking about probably are the confirmed um, positive, positive tests. cases. I wouldn't say that all of those are in the hospital, which is good because I know um, depending on the acuity of how the patient presents when they're being tested, is going to depend on um, how they need to be treated clinically. Hopefully they have not progressed to the point where it's so bad that they can't um, treat themselves at home. Uh, of course, the more that the disease progresses and according to you know uh, the patient's condition prior to that is going to determine if they get admitted or not. How are, you guys doing, like, how are you guys doing with PPE and stuff, Molly? Um, I have not run into uh, problems with PPE. I will say um, they are being conservative about distribution. It's not all out there, you know, to take and use as you want. Um, they are being conservative in the distribution of that. So. Uh, like for example one day i showed up and there was a stack of gowns and masks with my name on it so when uh, i got to that unit they're like here's your stuff for the shift um and that's what you get right now if you know something were to become soiled or not usable anymore it would um it would be easy for me to get more okay. um it is under lock and key uh Unfortunately, at the beginning of this crisis, we um, the, a lot of the PPE was going being was being used uh, rapidly, and they knew that if it continued at that rate, that uh, they would run out. So, um, and it, I don't know, there was a lot of fear around that too, and um, so it just started to deplete deplete pretty quickly. So they have come up with a method of uh, conserving their PPE as much as they can. It's, um, but it's not, I can get what I need when I need it. Can, can we talk a little bit about that fear that you just mentioned? I mean, sure. 
I know there's fear of running out of, of uh, protective equipment and all that, but so this, this crisis has been fairly active here for close to a month now. We've known it was coming. I'm sure... God, it seems like longer, doesn't it? I know. It, well, I can only imagine what it seems like for you on the front lines. But if, if you... I, I remember in the early days of the AIDS crisis, for example, when people were terrified of being near somebody who had AIDS. And then as we learned more about the disease and how it was transmitted and, and all that stuff, that some of that fear subsided. Has there been a similar progression in a shorter period of time as it relates to Corona? I mean, I know there's still a lot of unanswered questions, that, that much is for sure, but in dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, has it just become more of a, I'm going to work, this is what I got to do, and I'm getting it done? Or, or are you living with that fear every day? Yeah, it has become like that. I don't feel nearly as anxious as I used to going to work. Um, the first couple weeks, I was absolutely terrified to go to work. And um, just because of the fear of the unknown, you know, I mean, you see nothing but uh, really unhealthy people who are not doing well and they, uh, and they, they don't do well for a little bit and then they decline rapidly. Right. Yeah. Can I I ask you in that regard, um, does Toro provide any kind of like mental health support, you know, for the, for the frontline workers in terms of just dealing with, um, you know, that fear and anxiety and trying to stave off PTSD and all that stuff? I uh, have not uh, really looked into much of that. I know it's available if I need it um, or if any of us need that. I really feel like Toro has um, done a really good job to get out well, to, I, wouldn't say, I don't know about getting out in front of it. I guess they're out in front of it now, but um, to really keep pace with this disease and as it's um, taken over. And uh, they're, I feel like they're taking really good care of their employees at this point. That's great to hear. I think that might be a good segue to uh, Andrew, to our other guest, Anne-Marie. Um, hi, Anne-Marie, who, who is uh, a healthcare administrator in, in Amsterdam, based out of Amsterdam. Um, do you want to chime in, Anne-Marie, and say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me tell you something. Uh, great to see Molly, actually, and hear your experience. I do recognize a lot, but I work from a, a little bit different perspective. Uh, I'm a CEO of a healthcare organization in Amsterdam. But we treat, we have um, like people with, um, it's more in mental health care. So people with cognitive uh, problems, psychiatric problems, uh, autism, that kind of thing. And um, uh, we're in this situation now for uh, a month, I guess. And we have some infections, but also the, um, uh, or especially the impact of all the, uh, the fear and all the, the measures and everything, the impact on our patients is huge. And they start, they have a lot of uh, behavioral problems, uh, panic attacks, uh, psychosis, um, all kinds of difficulties in, in, in change of living. 
and that causes a lot of problem even actually more problems than the actual health risk and and uh, COVID-19 infections so like is one of the, that those examples Anne-Marie is like I would imagine um you have someone with other issues like uh, a person with a, a mental health issue who for example and you've told me this before uh cannot be isolated and still be healthy yes well we have people that are very um anxious and panicking and they need like very close attention mm -hmm. and physical contact with people uh, looking after them right. so uh in uh, our uh, healthcare workers they're not able to keep their distance like right. six, that's not possible and we I don't know if it's the same uh, at, uh, at your place, but here in Holland, uh, healthcare workers, when they have symptoms like coughing and sneezing, they still need to go to work. And um, well, that changed during the time, but in the beginning, uh, all the healthcare workers needed to go to work. And there, were, there was no PPA. We had a, a massive shortage of that. And the PPA that was available uh, went to the hospitals because of the to the to the really sick people on the COVID-19 units and our people they had to work with uh, sick uh, uh, patients without the the PPA and that was a that was a terrible thing because people were scared and they needed to go to work and um, we had to send them in without a PPA at, uh, at some times and that was, well, that was something uh, that woke me up in the night. And um, the the patients, I think I uh, I told you, Joe, we had one, for example, that has um, a, a, a no short time uh, memory. And uh, that patient every, every day wakes up and uh, he doesn't know the situation. So he starts hugging people and kissing people. And oh, God. Saying, that's so funny. Well, it's it was quite funny, also. But it's like, oh my god, this is this is the situation where um, our people are uh, are working in, and we have also like young people with cognitive problems and addictions, and they are just not. Uh, they they just don't want to stick to the rules. They just say, oh fuck you, we're going out, we're going to do our own thing, and whatever. So those guys, um, well, the, the healthcare workers have to to keep them in, and sometimes it's a physical thing as well. Yeah. So. Anne Marie, is the um, your facility is it an inpatient a mental uh, unit? Is that uh, an inpatient facility or is it an outpatient or both? Well, yeah, we have like it's one uh, organization, and we have like uh, sixty four small facilities. And some of them are uh, really closed, and others are more open. And uh, we have children and grown-ups, and so it's it's different. Every location has a different um, um, character. I Maybe. see. That's hard. Go ahead, Molly. I was going to ask also. Um, do you? I guess you have nurses or or. Uh, healthcare providers on site and when, when or if they notice a patient has developed uh, a new onset of symptoms that maybe yeah. look like COVID, um, do you 
send them to a hospital to be uh, assessed or evaluated after that? Yeah, or we all, uh, most of the time we have, we have some uh, doctors and um, uh, nurses working there and those patients are going to be tested and it depends on the severe, the, 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 the gravity of their symptoms. Mm-hmm. if they go to the hospital or we have to put them in isolation and that depends we had a few patients that need to go to the hospital and others uh, had to be taken care of in our facilities oh i gotcha yeah and there are in in my region and that's actually in all uh holland we have covid 19 kind of hotels care giving hotels sure and that's for people that are too bad to be at home or in a facility. Right. Uh, mine, but too good to go to a hospital and they need special care. And that's the place where they can, uh, can go. So that's like for people with mild, milder symptoms, but don't need to be on a ventilator, that kind of thing. Well, there are ventilators too, but it's not like, um, it's a little bit in between. And okay. because all hospitals are uh, full, so there are no, there's no place to go to a hospital right. for them. So it, it, it occurs to me, it might be worthwhile, Anne-Marie, because uh, the majority of our listenership is American and, and we all know what, what our healthcare system is like. Uh, maybe you could broadly describe what the system is in the Netherlands and, and how your organization fits into that. Yeah, well, I guess it's it's a little bit difficult to explain, I guess, for you guys to understand because in Holland we we have a our system is completely different than yours, so we don't have like private uh, care. We have something that is in between public and uh, pr- private, like mm-hmm. we have a regulated market situation. Um, so every organization is funded by, um, yeah, government money, but that's uh, going through insurance companies. So we pay taxes, taxes go to government, that money goes to insurance companies and they buy, uh, different kinds of healthcare. So I, for example, have a contract with, uh, different insurance companies and they pay, uh, for the patients that we have in our facility. And they, there's a difference between the, the healthcare or the hospital care mm-hmm. and the uh, more long-time care, like a mental health care, care for people with disabilities and uh, nursing homes, like that. Okay. So that's a difference. But there's no payment from the patient at the point of service, is that correct? Uh, well, everyone has a, has to contribute a little bit, uh, but that is nothing to compare with your situation. Right. So every, everyone has uh, um, an insurance. Everyone is insured. Mm-hmm. Healthcare. Everyone has healthcare um, in Holland, and if you use it, you pay like, uh, well, not much. Or a year. And if if you can't afford that, then there's probably some government fallback insurance. Yeah. 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 We even have 
we even have like a certain group of people in Holland that are very religious. It's a small group, like a little bit fundamentalistic uh, religious group. And they say we don't want um, to be insured because, well, God is looking after us, blah, blah. And um, oh, we, yeah, have, we have that here too. Sorry. Yeah. What? We have that we here. We have those well, people here too. Okay. Right, yeah. Yeah. Right up, right up the road. We have one part of our uh, healthcare department in government. There are people uh, working, especially for that group, to save money for them and give that money back to them if they need healthcare. But right. we don't call that insurance and they don't call it an insurance, but their care is it's paid for as well. Understood. So that's so why that's, it's fascinating, dude. It is. Yeah. So the, the, there's no problem for people here to, to go to a doctor, to go to a hospital or to go to a facility. And everyone is doing that. And uh, yeah. So, that's, so everyone I, has that, access. Everyone has and, access to healthcare. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's not a problem. So here you don't see, well, a little difference perhaps, but the, there's a big equality. Everyone has access to healthcare, and well, no one is bothered by, oh, I have to pay so I don't go or whatever. I so I guess that's that's a completely different situation from from sure. Your Definitely, uh, where where we have people who flat out don't have access, and the ones who do are afraid to use it. Um, you yeah. know, we, I, I talked earlier on about the the number of of cases and. You, you would have to imagine in this country that there is a hell of a lot more that are just completely unreported because people mm -hmm. are so afraid of going to the hospital that mm -hmm. they, they won't even take a chance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, with, without putting you uh, in a difficult position, Molly, I'm wondering what would, if, if somebody who was uninsured or underinsured, if, if they came to Toro Infirmary showing symptoms, are, are you at liberty to talk about what would happen in that case? Or do you know, or? Well, you know, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a floor nurse. I don't work in the emergency room, but uh, I do know that um, no one can get turned away at a, an emergency room because of, uh, uh, I think it's the, uh, uh, not because of HIPAA, what is it, the ACA? Hmm. And um, just no one can be turned away for care. Uh, right. I, I have not heard of one person who has not been cared for at the hospital. I, but Ma I don't work down at the bottom. No, I don't work sure. I mean, and, at the emergency and, room. So and, I don't. And, and even if they do get the care, that doesn't necessarily uh, talk to you know, what happens afterwards. Like the bankruptcy, you mean? The the potential bankruptcy or, or something like that that could follow after a casual emergency room visit. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, I, I would think that they would get a bill. Yeah. Right. Hey, Molly, I'm curious. Um, I know you, that you just mentioned you don't work in the emergency room. Um, but do you guys have those super quick tests now to evaluate people? when they come into the emergency room, like like the, the 15 or 45 minute test? I believe they do now. Um, I have, 
I think we just got those in maybe within the la last week, maybe. I know I was tested last week and my test came back in 36 hours, but I know that was expedited because um, I work there and they want to make sure or see what if I'm positive or not to see if I can go back to work. Um, and I was negative. Congratulations. Seriously. That'll be my first party outside of that. Uh, we're we're sharing a we're sharing a pod, we're sharing a podcast high five with you right now. Wow. Yeah, thanks. Um, but um, I I believe I don't know that it's fifteen minutes. Yeah, I'm, I just know when they get to the floor that uh, either they are waiting for the results of their test or we know the results of their test. Gotcha. Okay, so you are seeing patients come up from emergency where you know the results of the test where they are positive or not positive. I think, I think so. Don't hold me to that, but I, I, I believe we do most of the time know now. That's But they're being normal. held down there a lot longer or than normal as well. So, um, and, the, and why is that? We don't have beds upstairs. I mean, we're right. full. We're, so oh, they have to wait for a bed to open up. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and so at our hospital anyway, you know, you, we originally had um, different units were for different patient populations, whether it was like a, a neuro unit or rehab unit or cardiac mm -hmm. unit or just a med surge unit. Uh, with the exception, I think, of three units, they're all 100% COVID or COVID rule out okay. right now. And when you say COVID rule out, like you're trying to rule out that they... they we're waiting for test yeah, results. Yeah, we're waiting for test results. But and they're then, being treated, well, they're treated as if they are uh, COVID positive. Right. Mm -hmm. Put in uh, isolation, air, uh, negative pressure rooms. Got it. Okay. And hey, Marie, can, can I ask you a question? I'm sorry, Andrew, I'll have to stop on you there. Um, in terms of administration, um, I had asked Molly a question earlier about what kind of um, support that she has from an, an administrative level. And um, I'm wondering what you guys are doing um, uh, in terms of, well, you, for my conversations with you, not on this podcast, my understanding is that you guys were, for the last four weeks, were always kind of a week out in front in terms of planning and strategizing. and um, I'm curious about that, and I'm curious about the guidelines that y'all developed for um, how to treat patients in critical care. Loosely, I'll just say it's like the, the triage problem, right? Um, is that something you can address? Uh-oh. Who, were you talking to me or Anne-Marie? Anne-Marie about that administrative perspective on developing guidelines for the frontline workers like Molly for how mm -hmm. to address critical care and, and, and whether or not to let someone pass or mm -hmm. give them a ventilator. Yeah, so we started like the, the first two weeks of this period that was uh, all about um, making new protocols and instructions and keeping track with um, what well, we have, what you have, uh, like the CDC, we have the REPM, 
and every time they make like regulations and protocols and we have to translate them so uh, we made a lot of protocols for the healthcare workers what to do when they uh, notice symptoms uh, to, um, on themselves or on the patients and how to act and how to address that and how to protect them and in what situations they need to apply them the isolation protocols and how to do the to use the ppa and things like that so a lot of uh, protocols were made right is that what you were addressing yeah i mean basically the this this notion of um you guys have to give frontline workers doctors and nurses protocols and guidelines for how to address um the problematic issue of we're overwhelmed, we have too many patients, we can only treat so many, um, and how do we deal with that? How do we make yeah, those? I guess that that's the, the, the triage thing. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's a little bit different in my line of uh, work in the mental health care because we have, we have, um, uh, we made a plan uh, to address the con Continuous of sort of, or of care, like how to be sure to keep um, uh, providing care when uh, the healthcare workers get sick, for example. So right. we don't have that triage uh, question whether to treat one patient or the other, because all patients are already in our care. But we do have um, the problem when we have. Um, a lot of people getting sick, like the healthcare workers getting sick. And so then the question is, what patients get um, the care uh, of the available healthcare workers? And I guess that's in Molly situation in the hospital care, the triage is a little bit different, I guess. Yeah. And we have the, the in Holland, I guess that's the same everywhere. Like our patients, when they need to go to the ICU, uh, then they are on a lower like admittance level. And that's really a hard problem or it's difficult right. to explain. When, when and you say a lower admittance level, you mean the criteria to admit them are more relaxed? Or do no, you mean- higher, like when there has to be, the, in in the hospital, when there's a shortage of ICU beds, mm -hmm. they make they uh, decide who is getting the ICU beds, mm -hmm. and they do that by assessing what person has the most um, chance of living a healthy right. life after the admittance on the ICU. That's always like even if there's no crisis, they do that. And for example, in the Netherlands. Like people in nursing homes, people that are like over 80 years, they don't go to the ICU. So we have a tradition to talk with them, like doctors talk to those people and they say, hey, do you really want to go to the ICU? Uh, we don't think you're going to get like better there. So uh, in Holland, people over 80 seldomly go to the ICU. Right. And when they have to do the, the, the triage, when there's, when the, there's a shortage of ICU beds, people with um, 
older people with disabilities or with mental uh, issues sometimes are more complex to to be treated. It's 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 and, it's another factor that you take into account when deciding what what how productive their lives would be after and 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 versus another person who who's more likely to live a productive life. And uh, you know, I understand that those are the sorts of um, I think we may have lost Anne Marie for a second there, but um, oh. I I understand that those are some of the most difficult decisions that. What is that the quality any, of life going to be after there's a recovery? If there is a recovery. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, right? and 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 uh, and you know I I know that that sort of every every time we have a healthcare debate in this country. Uh, that's one of the things that comes up, you know, and along the lines of people with money arguing that if I have more money, I should be able to to circumvent that or whatever. Um, I I I think that's something that has to come down to a societal attitude that you, that you've gotten together and accepted that uh, that there are people who are intelligent and well trained people who are in a position to make those kinds of what are effectively life and death decisions and that we all as a society have signed on to 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 live by those rules. I think that's incredible. I think it's important to point out too that um, at least what I have uh, experienced is that the physicians are doing a really good job of uh, being honest with the patients, um, honest with the patients uh, in their uh, projected health outcomes, mm-hmm. and um, also being honest about what their experience most likely is going to be, and informing the patient as much as they can about their disease, pro- uh, the disease that they have, their disease process, what, how it's going to forget progress, and uh, their eventual outcomes. Uh, sooner so the patient can make an informed decision about um, how they want to proceed. Yeah, their care plan. Exactly. Do they want, uh, how how far do they want the healthcare providers to go to uh, help them sustain life? And maybe uh, do they want to uh, change their code status, maybe from a full code to uh, do not resuscitate Mm -hmm. or a do not intubate? status. Um, if I get to this certain point, could you just make me comfortable? And, right. uh, mm-hmm. and I so, guess subjects and um, a different, it, that differs a lot between all countries, like their different cultures are more into talking and having that discussion than other cultures. Mm-hmm. So talking about yeah. diet or not fighting or not uh, uh, fighting till the end in in an ICU. Um, in some cultures, it's more difficult to discuss that than in others. That's and true. I, For sure. yeah, that's I had, to your point, Emery, I had some DNR experiences just very recently um, because we don't talk about that stuff. But then I had to like do it very fast and rapidly. Um, that was going to be like a logistically game changer to have that do not resuscitate agreements for two different states while taking a road trip with a friend of mine. And um, it's, and you're right. I think I'm, I'm curious that your thoughts on that, that cultural difference, like why, why are Americans so shitty with that kind of thing? I wonder. Yeah. And <laughs> you're asking me. <laughs> yes. 
Um, I mean, well, hang on a second, Emery. I, I, I want to give Americans a little more credit than that, as Molly was just pointing out. What does he mean by he, shitty? He, he, a, a DNR and the, the fact that physicians are, are working with patients in the patient's best interest to, to, to do what the patient wants is, right. is extremely common in the United States. The, 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 the regulatory environment around that and how it differs from state to state is complicated. But I, I would be one to argue that that's not a cultural difference. I would say that you know, people are very interested in their own care and what they want the closer they get that's to, to a life-threatening condition. And so I we're apologize. trying to encourage to... I, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. I know um, they're, uh, we're trying to, in the, we're trying to get patients to participate more in their care and their health care decisions rather than saying, here's your medication, mm -hmm. take it. And more like, you know, educate, here's a, a medication that's being prescribed for you that I'm going to give you. This is what it does. And rarely do you get argument but at the same time you get the patient opportunity to ask questions like well why am i taking that or why are you giving that to me and uh, sure. anyway we're trying to encourage patients to participate more in their health care and their health care decisions and it involves a lot of education i guess from from uh, our and i mean like from our perspective here if from holland if Mailboxes. we look at america i think um, well, I have the impression that, and of course it's not black and white, but like Americans are more like, we want to, uh, repair everything and we, and you guys have more the fighting metaphor. Like we have to fight to get better. We were sick. We, we're fighting it. We're going to we throw get... everything at this, no matter what it takes. Right. We're going to throw yeah. everything we have in the kitchen sink. And just go, go, go. And, um, um, and uh, the conversation about the quality of life and perhaps um, accepting the, the end or um, looking at those things in a different way. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. that's perhaps that could be a difference. I experienced that as a difference, but I guess, well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't um, know if you recognize that. Um, yeah, it sounds, it sounds familiar. I, I think America is a very big country, obviously, and there are cultural mm. differences. And as we all know, there are geographical differences and different attitudes in different places. But what you're describing isn't all that unfamiliar. I, I, I think it's a mix. When I talked about people's choices and their wishes versus the regulatory environment, that's something that we're a lot farther behind on because we are so divided, not just in terms of what okay. people believe and how what people want, but also we have 50 states with 50 different regulatory yeah. regimes, and there is no national approach to any of that, um, mm -hmm. including mm -hmm. this crisis. Anybody who's following this crisis sees Governor Cuomo from New York, Governor Newsom from, from uh, California, Governor Bell Edwards from here uh, in Louisiana, Governor, if you want to call him that, DeSantis from Florida, on television talking about how each state is dealing with this crisis individually. 
and right. there's no coordinated national mm-hmm. approach, mm-hmm. which is perhaps a lost opportunity, but it's definitely more respectful of those cultural differences. It just doesn't help people um, in the situation that Joel was referring to before. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to have a federal government that had some coherence um, in helping, you know, uh, Amory, I think you know this, like in this country, we have this state's rights thing. That, Jesus, that, do we need and, to call Dick Cavett and Gore Vidal? That's just, <laughs> <laughs> whoa, that is a deep pull inside down the middle joke. Uh, I love it. Um, but like, and you, and yeah, I think you might have failed to mention the Ohio, the great Ohio governor who was out in front of this well in advance, the Republican, right? What's his name, Andrew? Yeah, he did a great uh, job. Mike, I Mike, don't remember De, his Mike name. DeWine. Mike DeWine. Thank you. Yeah, that dude was just all over it, you know, because he listened to professionals. And, and look, we don't want to beat this drum because everyone in the United States knows how, what a shit show our White House is right now. And uh, Trump is basically treating this like a PR thing and there's nothing in my mind. I'm not seeing anything actionable out of the White House. I'm only seeing, you know, uh, spin for the five o'clock news or whatever. Um, I, I want to hit back on one thing that Molly was talking about before uh, as we started to talk about patients and being honest with them about their prognosis and, and what they can expect. One of the things that I think there's a lot of, I don't want to say misinformation or disinformation, but it's confusing information about, is the different, for lack of a better term, levels of COVID infection and the prognosis at each level. Like you hear about people who have mild cases and stay at home and drink fluids and ride it out and they're fine on the other end. You hear about people who go into hospital, Boris Johnson being the the most prominent example, who go into hospital, go into ICU, take oxygen, maybe not on a ventilator, and then recover. And then there's, well, I mean, I don't put a lot of stock in what the president says either, but you hear him talking about if you get on a ventilator, there's very little chance that you're coming off it alive, which is blunt, and I don't know how true. So, I mean, those are sort of, the anecdotal pieces that I've picked up, is there any recognizable real pattern that you've seen uh, on the floor of, of what different levels of this, in, uh, this viral infection can mean for you as an individual who gets it? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so there are certain risk factors um, that can predispose uh, people to how severe this uh, virus is going to affect them. And um, lung disease, clearly, such as like COPD, asthma, smokers are uh, presenting with, I guess they get sicker quicker, if you will. Um, People with uh, metabolic problems like diabetes, have uh, we have, are seeing a lot of uh, diabetic patients that um, are presenting? They get faster uh, or quicker, sicker quicker as well. Uh, cardiovascular disease, obesity, um, age over the age of sixty, primarily is um, just more of the. Uh, 
I say pre-elderly or elderly populations. Right. So basically we're, so people in those risk categories are generally more likely to have the onset and the severity, uh, a faster onset and possibly a more severe case. But what about, but what about on the recovery side? Are we seeing that any of those factors are factors in possibility of recovery at all? Or is it just sort of blanket, if you get this severe a case of the disease, your prognosis is not very good? I think it depends uh, on how quickly you uh, seek health uh, care or interventions from the healthcare team, you know, because I know me personally, I don't like going to the doctor. I don't like going to, you know. Not, not too many people care. do. I'm not, not necessarily because of the cost. I just don't want to be bothered. So I'm going to see what I can do at home before. Plus you're around doctors every day. (laughs) Right. And I'm probably, you know, I I feel like I have, uh, you know, enough training to address my symptoms and treat my symptoms. Now, um, so I don't, uh, other people I would think kind of, act the same way. They don't want to go to the doctor. It could be because they, they're they afraid of the cost or mm-hmm. they don't have a ride. They can't get there. Um, so they try to manage it as uh, long as they can at home. And so at, as that's going on, the disease is, or the virus is uh, progressing. And uh, so when they present to the hospital, they are already far along, far enough along to where um, interventions uh, sure. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. I hear you. And Andrew, I, I have a follow-up sorry, question. Joel, sorry, just just quickly before yeah. before we go on to that, I would imagine sure. there are a lot of people, Molly, who you know are optimistically hoping that what they have is the flu or something that isn't COVID, and their thought about going to the hospital is not just colored with standard cost or going to the doctor anxiety. It's colored with I'm going to a place where there's COVID all over the place and I don't want to take that risk. And I, I I don't, I I don't want to ask you for medical advice, but, um, would, would you say. (laughs) Should Griper go to the hospital? Well, that, that, that's one question, but uh, sure. I mean, people, people, people who fall into the category that you were just talking about, are they, Mm -hmm. Um, the ones that are at higher risk you're talking about? No, the the ones who are the ones trying to wait it out at home. Yeah, right. Sure. Are are they are they increasing their if they don't if they're negative, are they increasing their risk by going to the hospital? Uh I can't I I'm not in the emergency room, so I can't really say if um I would hope that people would be provided masks as soon as they come in. I, I don't know if they are or not. I'm, but I'm I know anecdotally that, <laughs> that they're standing outside the emergency room. Uh, another friend of ours's mom had to go, was presenting with possible symptoms and didn't have it in Mississippi um, and was greeted at the emergency room by people in hazmat suits with infrared thermometers. To, to to read okay. their fever before they even let them in, even even close wow. to there. 
Well, I know that there are uh, triage tents outside of many uh, hospitals and other facilities to where they are. Uh, it is kind of a, a pre-assessment where they take your blood pressure, your temperature, um, evaluate you for other symptoms, how long you've had them, your, uh, I guess, your health prior to the onset of symptoms and um, your what other health history you have before you get sent into the emergency room. So right. that is helping to, and I think from there, they there are physicians out in those tents along with nurse practitioners and nurses who can assess the patient's acuity here. Uh, um, and the, with the rapid testing, that's gonna help a lot as well. So maybe somebody will know if they're positive or not before they even leave. I know before the rapid testing, what they were doing was what I just said, and then giving them people instructions on how to isolate from your family members at home, how to uh, treat yourself and treat your symptoms while you're at home. And I know when I went for my test, they gave me a couple of sheets of paper with a lot of information in here. I even was handed um, uh, an admitting uh, form to get into the emergency room to already have filled out if I have to come back. Right. Molly, can I ask you something? You were describing um, like the, the obesitas and the, the heart conditions, but in Holland, um, it's mostly men that um, are admitted on the COVID-19 units. Like, I think it's 67% men. Wow. Is that the same? Yeah. Is that is that same in um, in your place as well? Well, I know that has been mentioned, um, but I I see both men and women. I I can't say that it's been a higher percentage of the other, because some nights I'll have all men patients, um, all male patients, and then other nights I'll have all female patients, and then other okay. nights I'll have a mix. I appreciate <laughs> you asking that question, Anne Marie, because. Andrew, you alluded to this a few moments ago, um, which is anecdotal. Um, yep. And what I'm curious about is, is there a significant difference between data points um, in, in Amsterdam and, and the United States in the world specifically? I assume there are, because I feel like in the United States, and this is just sort of anecdotal because we don't have data, I feel like we don't have the appropriate data here. Well, to really you know, know one of the things, so I, I have a, a former boss who's a, a statistics geek and yeah. he keeps going into the statistics to look for patterns and, and this, that, and the other thing. And I kind of want to grab him by the throat because I don't have any faith in the validity of the statistics that we're seeing. We've had, no, we've had guests on the podcast who right. know of confirmed cases that aren't a part of the count. We, right. we can, we can pretty much piece together that every country is taking a different approach to both how they're counting, how they're testing, mm -hmm. how they're sure. considering somebody recovered, how they're counting a COVID-related fatality versus another kind of fatality. I, w I sure. wouldn't put it past people, not in the health, not healthcare professionals, but politicians, to reclassify, uh, reclassify that. You know, so. Sure. It's really, really hard, I think, to draw any valid statistical conclusions unless you have real close control over the collection and aggregation of that data. 
Yeah, it feels like we're flying blind here. Anne-Marie, what, what about over there? Do you guys have better data points, do you think, than us? Um, well, I guess we have good data points on what, um, in the case of all people admitted to the hospitals and the uh, ICU. So mm -hmm. they count that, they uh, assess that, they keep on track their age, their health condition, their the time they spend on the ICU, everything. And also the age and their, uh, like if it's a male or a female. And so those data are available now. Yeah. And doing also research, we have in the south of uh, Holland, in Brabant, there's a big, um, there was a big outbreak and uh, so there's a lot of people infected and they uh, do a lot of research in that area for example to see how infectious kids are because that's still uh, well the scientists are still not sure how infectious they are so they're researching that now and um, collecting data to to make sure how to address that Something too um, with the, our, our data over here is that there's a, from what I've read, there's a 30% um, false negative testing results that has percent uh, uh, reported. Yeah, and so I know that um, there have been some situations where we have patients who uh, present as though they are positive with, they have the shortness of breath, they have the tachypnea, they have the fever, they have the cough, they have um, headaches, body aches, fatigue. Um, their lab work comes back and reads as if, um, just like the positive patients do, their imaging comes back and looks like the positive patients do, but their tests come back negative. I've, read, just, that, I've read that same thing, Molly, and yeah. I'm, I'm curious, Anne-Marie, what you think on this, because at some point, I can't remember which country it was, but a country was like they were getting such a high rate of uh, false negatives that they just said, we're going to assume that everyone that's presenting symptoms has COVID because the tests aren't accurate necessarily. Could be, I don't know what country that is. I think but, that was uh, Britain. I think it was Britain. Okay. I, I, we're, we're talking a few weeks ago already, but I, I think that uh, I, could be, I could be wrong. But I, I recall reading that in The Guardian. And I know in the, in China, there's been a lot of false negative stuff too that I've read about. Mm. I was well, reading an article. I think in Holland that percentage is that high. And in the cases, Molly, that you describe, I know we had a few patients with those symptoms and they tested negative, but then they do the scanning. So they make the scans and then they compare the scans with the testing and then they after the negative test they on the base of the scan they can see it's it's COVID. so okay. i guess that's to be sure they follow up with other uh, sure. ways to assess that this is such a fun conversation but i'm so depressed right now andrew can we have some happy talk with our guests now before <laughs> happy talk <laughs> You say, yeah. Um, yeah. so I, I think Joel is is referring to crisis diversions. Is is that what you're referring to, Joel? Yeah, it's something to divert us from the last forty minutes of us, you know, which was a great deep dive into what our realities are. But we need to divert ourselves sometimes. And Andrew came up with the segment crisis diversion, so we can like get out of into our COVID place and get into a happy Gilmore happy place 
I'm I'm all down with doing that, but not before I thank both Anne Marie and Molly for uh, for an excellent excellent conversation and for sharing Absolutely. so much and being so straightforward with us and our listeners. Thank you so much for thank that. You. Thanks for um, having us. Well, oh, you're not going anywhere yet. We got some more questions to ask you, but a little bit less serious. So, so Molly, I know you're on the front lines, and I, I know you're there very often. But when you're not, what are you doing to to keep your mind clear? Well, I want to um, say one more thing, not negative, it's positive, about um, COVID stuff going on at my facility. Um I'm on several uh, nurse, COVID nurse web or Facebook pages. And um, there was a, a, some chatter about what can we do to support the nurses and the other people on the front line? Because, you know, there's been a lot of heartache and um, just let down from having to give so much and then with not so positive results sometimes. And so what we're, or I've presented to our administration that, you know, uh, we play uh, music when a baby is born. And so like a little snip and it comes on and you're like, oh, we know a baby's been born. It's been great. And so now they're trying to work it out um, to where when a patient is either extubated from uh, COVID uh, because they are getting better uh, and or uh, discharged and going home because they've recovered or recovering from COVID, we're now going to play a happy Oh, that's awesome. That's exciting. May there be a ton of music at Toro. I know, right. Um, So that should be going into effect this week, I think, is what my CNO let me know. Good. That's good. It's fantastic. But otherwise, to answer your question, what do I do? Um, Well, I self isolate. And uh, so my cat, Luna Tuna Fishbone, and I are keeping each other company. Um, I do yoga and do a lot of, Luna, wait, I'm sorry. Did you say Luna tuna fishbone? I'm sorry. Is that what you yes, said? That is my cat. Her friends oh, call her tunes. And That's she, awesome. she too is uh, self-isolating. <laughs> not, uh, not happy about it. Uh, but, uh, I have a fantastic support group. I do Zoom things with uh, Zoom meetings with my girlfriends. I've got the most yeah. awesome boyfriend on the planet who. Yeah, you do. Takes, uh, hell, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> who brings me food like Kugel and um, and other yummies and uh, comes and we social socialize six feet Good. apart, and that's been a great support for me. I've also, uh, have a, uh, my mother is the uh, care package champion of the world, and uh, so I depend on my support system to help get me through this because I'm by myself. So awesome. it's been all right. Keep One quick it. question awesome. for, on, on the yoga, Molly. Um, so mm-hmm. obviously you're not going to a yoga class. Can you mm-hmm. recommend anything to our listeners uh, to, to do yoga? I don't know if you're using YouTube or a book or you just got it so down that you you do it by rote but what what are you using i do not have it so down let me tell you that (laughs) so i do need instruction no i um i'm a member at uh, wild lotus 
uh, yoga studio here and they have gone online. Uh, so they, you know, you go and you sign up for a class and they give you a YouTube website to check out that time and it's available for 24 hours. So if I can't make it at the six o'clock time, I can do it later or awesome. that's what I do there. Yeah. Do you know if other yoga studios are doing it? Maybe that's for us to research, but uh, it's great that I think yours there is are. No, I Actually, I know there are, yeah, because somebody yeah. gifted me some classes from another studio. So I think uh, a lot of studios are are going online. Oh, for sure. Almost every friend of mine that's a female in New Orleans does yoga online right now. Oh, good. Uh, as well as Pilates, too. Um, so it's it's blowing up. I'm for, hoping that they keep it going even after the COVID. Why not? Do it from your backyard or your front porch. Yeah, that might be one of the... Uh, Silver think, linings, baby. Well, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know about a silver lining, but um, I can definitely see a lot more services that are doable at home being offered at home uh, after, exactly. after all this is done. So, uh, all right. Well, Anne-Marie, what, what do you got for us? What are you reading, listening to, doing to keep mm, your... Well, uh, 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 apparently, sorry, I, I have some intel on this. And there was... You? I, I'm so proud of my 10K walk yesterday. But I'm told, uh -oh. I'm told that a week ago today that you went on a 24-kilometer walk to a place called Holy Slot. Did I get that right? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I started that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we made, like Philip and I, we made um, a long walk, exactly 25 kilometers. And uh, we did that twice now. Wow. And uh, I started that two weeks ago. The first two weeks of this month, I was only working. I didn't right. do anything. And in the end of the night, I was so too tired and I just went to bed and there was nothing, I needed nothing to distract me. And after two weeks, when work uh, got a little less busy, uh, we went out and uh, we made that walk and we did that last Sunday again and we go out for that tomorrow. Nice. And uh, I guess for tomorrow perhaps it's going to be 30 or 35 kilometers so we have to set the, the standard i guess and so so tomorrow's a holiday for you sorry tomorrow's a holiday in the netherlands yes it is and it but it doesn't really matter because all days are a little bit the same so That's i right. work at home go to the office once in a while but and today is a, a holiday so we go walking and the nice thing about walking is for me, it's the exercising, like the physical exercising, but also being outside and also the talking. And right. it's different from sitting across one another and drinking and whatever and talking, oh. uh, which we do, of course, but like just walking and talking and reflecting on like life and work and everything. And sometimes being quiet and enjoying nature or, well, that's a, that's a great thing to do. And it gives me a lot of, it relaxes me and it gives perspective as well. So I really like to do that. And, um, um, and I also like, well, this is, Joel, you said it's not a, not a happy subject. And of course, a lot of um, not nice things are going on, but I think, this whole crisis is is a kind of interesting as well. Yeah. Uh, 
So I'm reading a lot of like background articles about how this is affecting society and how it works out in different countries and how perhaps this leads to a paradigm shift after the crisis or not or oh, yep. and, um, it's, fa it's fascinating isn't it that's it really is yes. it's fascinating and so in my day job or uh, i'm like it's very practical and it's very to i need to solve things and get things going but i also like to reflect on the greater like the greater scheme and what is happening afterwards and how it affects us in it like uh, uh, individuals, but also society. As a, as a civilization, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, in our different communities. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. It's so it's so it's so weird how that macro micro thing, Molly. Yes, that's right. That's so interesting to me because we're all yeah. experiencing it over the entire Epping world. Yet it's our communities that touch us every day, and uh, so it's it's fascinating. Yeah. What I think is interesting too, though, is um, that we'll be able to refer to uh, this time of how we uh, conducted our life. And because a lot of people are working online when they used to not have that option. So um, I know a friend of mine who I think she works for the federal government. She was talking about how her employees or the people that she supervises are much more productive now than they were when they had to report to the office. Sure. So I think this is uh, hopefully going to offer a shift in uh, our approach to uh, our employment and how mm -hmm. you know, the options I, that we you, have. You know, Molly, have. as someone who's employed in Los Angeles and lives in New Orleans, I am counting on it. <laughs> I'm yeah. Counting on it. Also, <laughs> also speaking to another person that like my most productive hours, it turns out, are 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. And I get to roll with that now. For you sure. Know, I don't have to like do that nine to five thing. It's As great. is evidenced by the text that I get in the middle of the night. Oh, sorry, buddy. I should cut that. You should, you should silence your phone, but I, I will try. No, no, no. I'm working on what the right do not disturb hours are. I'm still getting into my rhythm. Um, yeah, you're right. What's, Joel, your, what's your diversion, dude? What's your my, diversion? My diversion, um, I don't know if you're an SNL fan. I am. Last night was the first yes. SNL episode from home. I posted and, it on Facebook today. I was so excited. Yeah, I uh, I watched it this morning. Saturday so Night good. Live, Anne-Marie, if, if you don't uh, know what SNL means right off the bat. it uh, I It's hard to describe. It, it wasn't the funniest thing I've ever seen. There was certainly a lot of effort and a lot of... I mean, it demonstrated how clever these people are. Um, almost a throwaway segment at the very end. I think it was uh, Ego Nodim doing makeup for Zoom with uh, Crayola, Crayola magic markers. That's great. It, it was it was a great set. Sorry if I spoiled that for you, but I encourage you to watch and just see how creative and talented those people are, and also just to feel a little bit more normal. For those Dude, of you who, who check Andrew, in on SNL all the time. SNL might be the most through line of a cultural touch point in my entire life. Dude, that's Gen X. Gen X and I've never SNL. missed a show. I've we, never missed a show. We grew up while the original cast yeah. was happening. We lived through the 80s and the, right. all the casts. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's, it's the progression of our lives. 
So that, that, definitely, right. you were talking about Gen X stuff the other day. That would uh, that would definitely be one. Are you listening to WWZ? Because I'm not. I feel kind of embarrassed by that. I I've been listening a little bit more to NPR in the car than I than I normally would when I'm down here. But I have to uh. tell you, I tuned into OZ yesterday at about two o'clock in the afternoon, and yeah. on the hour, the first thing that happened was. The program you're about to listen to was previously recorded. So they were playing canned shows wow. on OZ. Now, I don't That's know incredible. what's behind that. I don't know if they're finding it difficult to staff the station or yeah. if people just don't want to come in. I remember back during Katrina that I actually corresponded with the then general manager, I think it was David Friedman of WWOZ, and had some recorded shows that I emailed to them. And they set up, a, because obviously their transmitter wasn't back, they set up a stream of just shows that third parties had recorded. I know over the years they've gotten a lot more tight and have planned for stuff like that. So yep. I don't know how much of what you're hearing on OZ right now is live. It's a pity if it isn't. Well, I'm but, glad they're being safe, Andrew, i got to say. I'm glad. If they, don't, if they can't be live, they can't be live. I mean, I, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I, I, yes, everybody should be safe first, but it, I it probably really haven't sad. tuned into OZ just because I didn't want to be depressed by them not having a live show. Probably. You know what I mean? Yep. But, but would you have more stuff? Cause I, I actually have music recommendations. Go for it. Okay. Um, Van Morrison's first album, Bang Masters. He had just come over uh, from Europe and he and Lester Bang was the producer and he did the brown eyed girl thing, which is like my Lester Bangs was the producer? Correct. And I so the Lester album Lester Bangs was didn't he start Cream magazine or something? I thought I yes, I think you're right. I, I could be butchering this, but the album is called Bang Masters. And Lester Bangs owned all the rights. But the idea, though, the deal that Van Morrison, like fresh off the fucking boat, dude, in New York City, was I'll give you your six songs, and then you give me my six, right? And so you, his six songs, Bangs's, were Brown Eyed Girl, all the shitty Van Morrison pop songs right. that everyone loves, but I can't stand those people. And But then he also did six songs of his own, which became Astro Week's about two years later, and it was the, it, which is the, my favorite album of all time. Uh, Same so, Mad, Madam George, yeah, no, well, yes. Astro Weeks is yes. obviously Madam a seminal George. album. Dude, you can hear Lester Bangs in the background on the original Madam George, like, this is going way too long, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's sorry, I'm moving too much. So, I'm getting so, really animated. So, so, Lester Bangs was not the producer, the producer was Burt Burns. But oh, thank you. But I, I want to dig in more on this because I, I was not aware of this and I'd love to find out more. Wikipedia a, is, I'm looking at it right great. now. It's very thin, very thin on it's, this album. It's, it's a great story. And then other two very quick things related to one of our guests, Molly. Um, you mentioned your fabulous boyfriend. Um, I ordered a book for his son that should be coming to their house soon. Um, it's called The Hummingbird and the Hawk. And that is a creative nonfiction piece about this 
Spanish uh, uh, what do you, um, conquest of what we now call Mexico in the mid middle 1500s. And it reads like effing poetry. It is my, along with Tommy Sankton's songs for my father, it is my favorite hands down creative nonfiction piece. It is just, it's a knockout. And uh, awesome. I don't think- Julian's gonna love it. I don't think he knows it's coming and I'm glad it is. And then very finally, and it's funny, Andrew, cause I had us not on my list too, but um, Christian Scott, the local musician who is the nephew of- um, Donald of, Harrison. Uh, thank you. And uh, he was like he one of those- He goes by a different name, doesn't he? He does, he does. What is it? It's, he does go by a different name, but he, I think he still goes by Christian Scott as well. I'm not sure. Apologize to Christian Scott and his and his family who live right down the street from me, if I'm completely um, making that mistake. Um, but he went on Ryan Rosillo's podcast of all things, the dude from The Ringer, who's like a bro dude, yeah, you know, guy from ES, fam, you know, famously from ESPN, and now he's on the, the Ringers Network. Dude, Christian Scott uh, gets a call from from a Ringer podcast. He's gonna pick up the phone. He's going to as, take as it. talented and, and wonderful as Christian yeah. Scott is, he's going to answer that call. And it turns out that Ryan Rosillo really loves jazz music, and Christian Scott's his favorite artist. And I'm not going to call out Trombone Shorty because he's awesome, but in that vein, the two kids that I saw playing at Jazz Fest all those years ago with you, Andrew, in the jazz tent, when Trombone Shorty would come up with James Andrews, and then Christian Scott would come up with Donald Harrison, I got to say, I mean, if there's scales and there's a balance, I love me some Christian Scott as well. I'm 100% there with you. My, my memory is a little different. It's about him sitting in with Don and Lonnie at the Blue Nile. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, well, that's good good shout out, man. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Well, I think that about wraps it up. So I'm going to thank our guests, Molly McGee and Marie Van Dalen. Thank you so much for joining us. That was that I got I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to slight anybody else but that's by far the best conversation we've had so far on this this hey. young podcast for sure so can I um, include just some information real quick to help your you listeners sure can please um I have been going through the internet and trying to find some uh good information to for people, uh, Johns Hopkins University website has a really good website. Uh, COVID-19 information. Dr. Falone is a virologist there who um, has, it's a really short six minute um, video that explains uh, how the virus gets in and attacks. And um, I just thought that was really helpful. And it's just on layman's terms. So it's really helpful right. to understand exactly what we're facing. Um, the Mayo Clinic had uh, some good information too on how we can help ourselves and uh, supporting ourselves and our uh, community through this um, along with, and I don't know if I, uh, this isn't really a plug for a local uh, uh, place, but the Remedy Room has uh, on their website, they have a whole lot of information, videos on other ways to help support your immune system and what you can do for yourself at home to uh, promote your own personal wellness. So that, 
Thanks for letting me include that. But yeah, I'm just trying so awesome. hard. Oh, everybody yeah, 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 yeah. We really need we really need to uh, to start putting this together on the website, Joel, a set of COVID nineteen resources that people can rely on. So thanks so much for that, Molly. Really appreciate it. Uh, As always, thank you to my co-host in the seventh ward, Joel Jackson. Locking it down. Right on. And Marie, so good to see you. Uh, So good to see you. Hope to see you soon. soon in better circumstances. I know, right? Yeah. Absolutely that we're all looking forward to those better circumstances mm-hmm. in, in, in the meantime mm-hmm. in the meantime time. stay with us here we'll chat digitally um thank everybody for tuning in to this extra long episode of six feet of separation um andrew levy for joel and our guests i'd like to say stay safe and keep your distance thank you